All righty, we continue. Uh, we're taking the text, the gospel text from the Revised Common Lectionary. So each week with others all around the globe, we're looking at a particular portion from the gospels and have seen this uh, storyline beginning and that will follow through from the birth of Christ to the birth of the church. This is God's work. Now, before I read the text, I want to remind and encourage you of group opportunities. Um, I really think more and more that it's important for all of us to not only deepen our life in Christ, but to navigate life together in, with relationships, people with whom we can have a spiritual conversation. And so I'm encouraging all sorts of group opportunities. You heard of the one at 2 o'clock this afternoon, a, a women's Bible study with a Janice, uh, then on Monday night, Grief Share starts up. Please think of this as more than a class. Typically, don't you think of a class as there's knowledge here and I need to get it there? Think of these as groups, as ways to navigate life together. Sometimes it'll be a particular topic. On Wednesday night, we're having a one-time taste of one of the groups in the Resolving Everyday Conflict, an eight-week session that I do. But you could come and get a taste of what that's like and consider maybe getting involved the next time we uh, share the whole thing. So a lot of things will be going on with groups. Uh, avail yourself of those. Um, let's cultivate that. I said last week, and I think I'm going to say this again and again, I don't believe God called me here to gather a following for my preaching. I believe God has called me here to help equip a community of his grace and faith that we can gather in this moment, encourage, build, direct what God wants to do in and through you. So um, may avail yourself of those group opportunities. This morning, last week we looked uh, a little later in the chronology at the Transfiguration. Now we go back to before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just been baptized. He faces this temptation. And afterwards, we'll go to the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to make sure you're clear in that chronology. But let us hear the Word of God. I'll begin reading at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, oh, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us that years ago you committed yourself in writing 
that your Holy Spirit moved on many people across many centuries to write under your inspiration in such a way that what they wrote is what you want to speak to us through. Thank you for the way that you preserved these texts. It's an amazing story that now lets, uh, lets us take those texts and translate them, read them, and prayerfully receive them under the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Guard your people from my sin and distraction and brokenness, but instead in the fullness of your grace, let us see Jesus and his great love. We pray in his mighty name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Well, this week, I want to make four particular movements in this text. The first one, more than meets the eye, is really about biblical worldview. It's about the context that helps us understand better what we read. Then we'll dig into the text with three particular temptations. I want to look at each of them and what they talk about. And then the manner of attack, the, the temptation itself, and how to... Uh, understand, well, that may play out in our own lives. And finally, finding grace to face your temptations. Um, I want you to hear by the end of this uh, sermon, I want you to hear the gospel as an answer to temptation. What Jesus did on the cross is the answer to the temptation that you and I face. God's grace is a different answer than our effort or that great church people move of denial. Grace, not effort or denial. I'm excited about the power of the gospel and what that can mean. The first thing I want to encounter is this issue of biblical worldview. And I often use this statement, more than meets the eye. You see, the Bible has an expansive view of reality. Now, God is the Lord and sovereign of all, and that's good news. But an expansive view of reality. We often think of physical reality. That's what we're good at. We take care of that. That's science and all these different things, what we can measure and see. It's the realm of humanity. And certainly that operates under God's sovereignty. But there's another aspect to reality that if you don't at least have a category for this, much of the Bible will be strange to you. And that's spiritual reality. Now, a metaphor that I'll often use in my own thinking and talk with others about these two different kinds of reality are AM and FM radio. Do they still put AM and FM in cars? I've got old cars, so it's sometimes hard to know. But AM and FM, they're both radio, but they're just different. And your AM radio basically has no idea that FM exists. It's there, but it can't pick it up. I like to think of physical and spiritual, AM and FM, both real, but different. And to be good in one doesn't mean the other doesn't exist, you see? Now, in physical re reality, I'm going to say this is the world as we know it, human beings, but in this other reality, this spiritual reality, that's no less real for being spiritual. Any more than FM is no less radio for being FM. 
But this is the realm. I'll just give you an example of angels. Now, there's some things that are similar between the physical and the spiritual. The first is this. They are real. Now, that's a different worldview than Buddhism. In Buddhism, all that you see, all that might be there in the spirit is just passing away, an illusion. We could talk more about that, the Atta and the Sankaras. But biblical Christianity sees these as real. And it understands that in both realms, the physical and the spiritual, there's good and evil. There are some things in the physical world, some values and motivations that reflect God's values of righteousness and justice, and some don't. In the same way, in the spiritual world, there is good, but there's also evil. I'll be honest, do you have any friends or family, or have you heard in the media this statement, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? I kind of get what that's about. I'm, though I work every day as a pastor in institutional religious setting, I get the idea that all these traditions of humanity sometimes get to be a drag. But when somebody says I'm not religious, I'm kind of like that, but instead I'm spiritual. Now I'll behave if one of your friends says this to me, but you know what goes through my mind? Okay, you're spiritual. Good spirit or bad spirit? Friends, not all that is spirit, not all that is spiritual reality is Holy Spirit. And that's to be considered and prayed about and discerned. Another thing that's common between the physical and the spiritual is that there's personal existence in each of those There's the marks of personality, will, makes decisions, identity, both spiritual and physical. So there's the ability to be personal. Many times we think of the world of the spirit as kind of force. One of the first things I had to learn in my own walk with Christ is that the Holy Spirit is not just but the Holy Spirit has personality personality, convictions, decisions. He acts. Now, when I lived in New Orleans or in Asheville, these were communities that had vibrant street life. Sometimes we'd go downtown or down into the sections of the quarter. There were sections of the French Quarter we avoided. But there would, have you ever seen the living statues? Those people dress, all painted up in silver and they stand there just like that. And after about 30 minutes, they'll do this, and you just start. One of the things I want you to realize that in the reality of the Spirit, these personalities have will. And just because they stand there and don't move doesn't mean they won't act strategically. I've often told folks, The enemy has a detailed plan for your life, and he's waiting strategically to make you miserable. So, the realm of the spirit, the realm of physicality, AM, FM, 
distinct and different, but similar in some ways. I want to dig in now into that spiritual reality, the FM radio side of the dial. And I want to look specifically at evil spiritual reality and give you two biblical truths that kind of keep us inside the, the lines here. The first is this, that evil spiritual reality doesn't present itself physically. This was fascinating to me. If you look through the scripture, you never see some guy with horns pop out to where you can see him or talk with him. Never presents physically. Now, it's true that he can affect or influence physical reality. But if you read the language real carefully, there's never any expression that that FM reality gets physical. It'll affect the physical sometimes, but it cannot find substance the same way you and I do. The other thing that's important to realize about evil spiritual reality is that it's rare in the Old Testament. You don't see a lot. Part of that is because the Bible is not about a cosmic war between good and evil. Now, Paradise Lost, Milton's book may be, but not the Bible. The Bible is the story of a sovereign God who out of the fullness of community in the Godhead created. That creation was broken, but then he worked to redeem it. We know who the hero of the Bible is. That's not up for grabs. And so the Bible tells its story from Genesis to Revelation and spiritual evil is a part of that, but it's not the main focus. Still, you'll see things in the Garden of Eden with the fall. That is a story, a record of personal spiritual evil affecting the physical and changing history. The book of Job is more than just ancient literature. It's a peek into spiritual reality to understand what it can do in our lives. Daniel had visions and he saw things. They were going on in the spirit, but they would affect the physical. Friends, there's others as well, but by and large, these are rare. We dare not make them more than they are. But for all that, getting this biblical worldview, see, it's not just cause and effect. There's more to reality than cause and effect. There's more to cause and more to effect. Though it's rare in the Old Testament, one thing you clearly see is that there's a dramatic increase of encounter with this around the ministry of Jesus. Think of it this way. FM radio breaks into AM radio. That's unusual in our own personal experience and understanding. It's, it's kind of hard to grasp sometimes, frightening. We may want to step back from it. But think of it that way. Last, way in the tri last week in the transfiguration, FM broke into AM. And here, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus as he really was with Moses and Elijah. This week, we're looking at the dark side of the FM dial, if you will. Jesus encounters the tempter. Now, I want to tell you something, friends. We need this larger, more nuanced biblical worldview. Many outside the church, particularly Western and secular kind of folks, want to reduce reality to just physical cause and effect. The Bible calls us to a larger view of reality, more nuanced, complicated, 
less under our control. But without that biblical worldview, temptation, both for Jesus and for us, becomes unreal, a passing thought for us to manage or, or deny. So let's keep this biblical worldview. There's more here than meets the eye as we look directly at the three temptations. Now, I was struck, and the commentator Dale Bruner, a professor at Fuller Seminary where I once studied, had real insight for me in this, and I'm I'm thankful and will give him credit for what I pass along. These three temptations present themselves like three different doorways. The first is this, the door of weakness. Now, the scripture is clear. Jesus had been fasting, that is, not eating for 40 days. If you had not eaten anything since January 20th, you would be hungry, and so hungry that you'd be weak. John Calvin, that great expositor of the scripture, that law professor who was converted and shaped Western civilization, has this amazing statement. He said, even messiahs get hungry. So here is Jesus at the point of his weakness, hungry, and the tempter comes to him and says, provide for yourself in your weakness. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds with the word of God, Deuteronomy 8.3, humanity doesn't live on Deboer's bread only, but we live by every mouth that comes from the word of God. Satan was attacking his weakness. Jesus responded with the written word of God. Now, deep in his heart, Satan was attempting to press this fear regarding provision. Ever faced that? How many people get up on Monday morning and go to work in fear about their provision? If I wasn't working, I wouldn't be eating. We work out of this motivation of fear. Will God really provide for me? Even closer to home, it's been a tough week in the stock market, hasn't it? It would be very easy to look at your IRA or 401k, to look at your desk and see two unexpected medical bills from last week and wonder, yikes, how am I going to pay for that? Notice, friends, it is at that very moment that the painted silver living statue, who's been silent and and waiting, bends over and whispers in your ear, can you really trust God to take care of you? He's strategic. He's waiting for just a moment. You know, the church I led in Louisiana had a school attached to it, so five days a week I was interacting with K through 12 students, and boy, I was deeply reminded in that moment of how hard it is to navigate middle school. We noticed something in the course of teaching and leading these students. We had middle school students who to talk with as a pastor or a teacher, they were kind and decent, polite and wonderful. And then on social media, at 11 or 1 or 3 in the morning, they would say the meanest, most bullying things you could ever imagine. See, it's hard to grow up in middle school to navigate. Am I liked? Do I have friends? And so when my circle of friends kind of cuts one out and takes aim, it's easy to walk along. 
We often get tempted at the point of our weakness and our fear. What's yours? Beware. So 40 days without food left him weak, but he turned to the Word of God. The next doorway of temptation is the doorway of his strength. Jesus is a person who loves the written Word. He says, I did not come to do away with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. Not a jot or tittle will pass away. Every crossing of a T, every dot of an I matters. And so it shouldn't be surprised that the tempter comes with the written word. And this is a quotation from Psalm 91. The enemy can quote the written word of God as a proof text. Now, Jesus recognized that the words are right, but the motive is not. Ask yourself these questions in light of that. Trust God for your safety? Will you act in your own presumption? Ever done that? Will you take dangerous risks at my leading, says the enemy, not at your father's? Will you use God's written word for your own desires? You ever heard that temptation? I don't watch the channel, but it's right there on TV. It's there, friends. It surrounds us. These are real temptations, whether we recognize them or not. We all face them. Now, notice here, Jesus does not reject the written Word of God, though Satan uses that. He runs to the written Word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. He looks at this moment where Israel says, I've got to have this. I'll get it my way. Friends, the words of the Bible are not given to us as demands we can make of God. They are the point at which the Holy Spirit of God makes our Father known to us. We need to treat that written word in that way. And we need to understand that often it is in the areas of our strength where I perform well that the tempter will point us towards ourselves. Let me tell you about a temptation I've never had in my life. I've never been tempted to be proud about my grades. I had a calculus class taught by a guy named Julius Brutus Stroud. He was a great professor. His, he and his wife were very kind to us students, but I don't mind telling you, I had his class and then I went to Chicago to see Mary Lynn and I remember getting back at the end of the semester and looking on the board and seeing William Lidner D. And suddenly, a wave of gratitude swept over me. Thank you, Jesus. I've survived. See, I was not strong in that area, so I was never tempted to pride. But you and I do have areas of gifting and of strength and capability. And it's easy to begin to trust in those things. Third temptation that we see in this text is the door of vocation. Now, by this, I mean more than where you go to get your paycheck. If you're an eighth grade student, you know what you want to, want to know what your vocation is? To be a Christ-centered, growing, faithful eighth grade student. Vocation is wherever God in his grace has placed us to flourish. If you're a dad, you know what your first vocation is? Trick question. Your first vocation is to be a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king. 
And out of that, to be a husband, second. To be a father, third. And then some other things follow that. I hope you're employed. That's a good thing. Further down the way. Vocation is a stay-at-home mom or perhaps a working mom. Vocation is the place where God has placed you, right there, empowered you to flourish in his grace. He'll teach you and shape you and help you learn to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Vocation is not something you're waiting for or preparing for or punch the time clock for. It's where you are right now and where you're called to be faithful and flourishing. Simply put, Jesus came to rescue the world from sin. That was his vocation. And this temptation is Jesus. You can do what you're called to do without the cross. You can do it your way, the cheap and easy way. You can be a parent without investing time. You can be a parent and always be loved. Remember some of the best parenting advice I got. We were struggling through a season that we called the cave. When it's like our teenage kid would just go into a cave and who were they? And someone told me, you know, if you want affection, get a puppy. Your calling right now is to be a parent. And to act in their best interest in the power of the gospel. If you need your kid to love you, you're going to have trouble being a parent. Boy, rocking my world. We're called to this vocation, but shortcuts in that vocation. Making that vocation an idol. Thinking we can do it our way. Our weaknesses, our strengths, our vocation. Three key areas that the FM breaks into our AM and seeks to pull us away from God. Let's dig into this attack. Two quick things I'll say just because of time. One is I sense the attack as I see it in Scripture and certainly as I navigate it in my own life is that it's eternal. It's one of these moments when the FM breaks into our AM. If you could imagine with me that on Friday of this week, Jesus has been in the wilderness fasting since January 20. 60 Minutes hears about it, and they show up with a camera and a microphone, and they're watching Jesus. It's Friday. We're at day, what is that, 28, 38. He's prayed a lot. He's recited the Psalms in the Old Testament a lot. He's sung. He's slept. He's done everything but eat. What will he do? Day 39 comes. Day 40 comes. Day 41 comes. He gets up and walks off. I think we're going to miss the battle with temptation if we think it's external. I'm guessing it comes to Jesus and it comes to all of us as a voice, as an invitation to fix our weakness, to live by our strength, or to make our vocation something more than it is. You see, temptation always begins inside, I think, because first we're tempted to believe something false before we act out that sinful behavior. Young person thinks, boy, if I really follow God and what he's 
created for me sexually, I'll miss out on something I really want. First, there's a wrong belief that God would ever give us law that lets us miss out. When we think we're going to miss something by being obedient to God, we first have a belief problem. Whatever behavior follows grows out of that false belief. So the point of attack, I'm guessing as you looked at Jesus, and I know as I walk in my own life, begins right here. The place that it happens internally, I think this text points me to realize it's about who I am. You see, if I think that it requires this or that to be who I am, I'm going to do anything I can for this or for that. Fill in the blank, your own thing. Look at how this operates in the life of Jesus here. Chapter 3, verse 17, the first verse I read. This is the voice of the Father who says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We learned three things. We learned something about Jesus, that he is the Son. And we learned something about God, that God loves him. And that God is pleased with him. Look at the first word that the tempter places in Jesus' mind. If. If you are the Son of God. It's amazing. Now, I get it that there's at least 40 days from one to the other. But the last thing we see in Matthew is, this is my son. The next word we hear of accusation is an enemy who says, if. If you are the son of God. Friends, I want to tell you, when your identity is given to you by God's grace, it is as strong and as solid as God. And from that, we can respond to every attack. One little word will fell him, said Martin Luther. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The one word of if that the tempter presses in on us, are you loved? Are you capable? Are you significant? Can be answered with the one word, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ God the Father says, this is my son. The tempter says, if. It's as if, and I want to take this quotation from J.D. Greer, a pastor in um, Raleigh, North Carolina. He says, don't let Satan put a question mark where God has put a period. When God, by his grace, calls you and you're adopted, and he says, you are my deeply loved, fully adopted child. That ends with a period. Whenever you hear that with a question mark, I want to tell you, that's not God. That's not God. This question of, of identity, who am I? What do I need to be fully satisfied as a human being? You know, I had to come to grips. It seems so silly now. But my dad raised the question, oh, you want to be a pastor and serve God? Are you ready to live without a Porsche? See, as long as I thought I needed some kind of car or some kind of house or some kind of relationship, 
I couldn't live in to all that God had called me to. Let me give you an example of, of how all this comes together and, and can really impact our lives. Those of you who are or have been married, you know that there are ups and down seasons. You hit this season where work is demanding, the kids are just pressing in, and you're wondering how to get from paycheck to paycheck, and you're passing with your spouse, got this, got that. And in the midst of that desert, because that's what it is, and it can go on for days or weeks, some people for years, there comes this moment, another person says, oh, I really like your hair. That looks good on you. And then that silver living statue bends over and says, if only your spouse would appreciate you like that, you could be happy in your marriage. See, deep down in your heart, there's this, this sense that I need something other than God to be happy. And in the midst of that desert, I find something that presents itself as bread. And there it is. I want to tell you, how do you deal with temptation? I want to point you to Jesus, whose love for you and whose love in that example would say you're deeply loved. Now, because you're loved, reach out, initiate with your spouse. I want to close with a series of questions about how we experience grace to overcome temptations. And the first question is this, what are your temptations? Can you name your temptations? Can you identify the internal conversations that undermine your relationship with God, your identity? Maybe they underline the goodness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Notice I'm not asking about your behaviors. Now, to make this concrete, I've told you about one of my patterns of temptation that I've seen mark all of my life, my behavior to win the argument. Now, the temptation was not simply to win the argument. That was the behavior. The temptation was the belief that I was indispensable to the work of God in a person's life. So I'll win the argument. I'll humiliate your thinking to show you I'm right. God wants to use that. It sounds so stupid when you unmask it like that. My behavior to win the argument was the temptation to believe my good argument made me a good person. I must have standing with God. I understand biblical archaeology. The temptation was not to win every argument. The temptation was to believe that I was justified in calling a person a fool in the contemptuous speech of my mind because my argument was strong and right. Jesus called that thought murder. What are your temptations teaching you? Can I humbly suggest that you consider if you can't name your temptations, you may not be learning some things that Jesus would like to teach you. How did Jesus find his way into the desert? Was it through sin? The Bible says it was the Spirit who led him there. Do you have a Holy Spirit who could put you in situations beyond your ability so that you can learn grace to respond in his strength? If you don't, here's the bad news of the good news. 
He wants to do that. In love, just as he did with his son, he will lead you into circumstances where you are beyond your own ability so that you might learn to live by his grace in a new way and place. What are your temptations teaching you? And they'll teach you about yourself. It'll always be some variation of what it means to be a sinner who needs a savior. But what are your temptations teaching you also about God? That his grace is able. That you can notice that statue move and say, no thanks. That when you hear, if you are a beloved child of God, you say, oh, oh no, there's the cross. I realize I just did bad behavior, but there's the cross. Because of the cross, I'm deeply loved and fully adopted. Don't talk with me, talk with him. That's spiritual warfare. Don't bring it up with me. Talk with the one who rescued me. I love this passage from Hebrews 4. We used it with the assurance. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Tempted just as we are. Maybe not tempted by the behaviors that we face, because we face some new behaviors. Read internet pornography that Jesus never did, but the ability to, or the temptation to use people for my own pleasure, that is the root of that behavior, that temptation presses in on Jesus and he faced it. Because of that, we can go to God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The way to overcome temptation is to rest deeply in the grace of Christ from the cross. I've included again in the sermon, in the sermon outline this heart of white gospel meditation. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for me and for all humanity, I am not my own. But instead, by the working of his grace, I am a deeply loved and fully adopted child of the great creator king. Parentheses. Do I foul up? Yeah. Do I make mistakes? Oh, yeah. Am I perfect? No. But that's not what it stands on. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I am, and I will not listen to another if. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've loved us deeply. Help us to see that that love is not anything with us, but it's who you are. That's why we can be secure in it. That's why we can let your love speak to our insecurity. Your kindness speak to our fearfulness. Thank you that at the cross, Jesus did everything necessary for me to respond in faith and say, I am a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king. Feed my heart on that, that my behaviors might grow and show forth that truth. Feed me every day by your word. Help me to seek first your kingdom and all its righteousness and to live by that strength. If we make this prayer in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen, amen.